Welcome to the Beacon Church Podcast. Each week we post a sermon from our last Sunday service so you can catch up, review, or share with your friends. We pray as you listen to this week's episode, you're encouraged and equipped to love God, love people, grow in Christ, and serve the world. Well, good morning, everybody, and happy Halloween. Somebody told me that was the first time they'd ever been wished happy Halloween by a pastor uh, earlier today, and so if you grew up in those uh, churches, then, uh, then this is an awkward day for you, and uh, there you go. So um, anyway, it was uh, my first year at, uh, in college, and uh, I was studying architecture at the time. And you might get that a little confused with Trevor's story because he also studied architecture before moving into ministry, uh, which is super weird. Um, but uh, so I, I'm in the, uh, this first year of uh, classes. And uh, of course, you're trying to you know, do really, really well. And we had an awesome assignment. We were supposed to create a presentation for a famous architect, Neutra, Robert Neutra. Um, and, um, and so we were doing this uh, pretty cool thing where we actually went and uh, visited his, uh, his, some of his work, Richard Neutra. We visited some of his work in Southern California. And so uh, these are his designs. Uh, they're beautiful and they're elegant and they've got uh, all of this incredible glass and beautiful views uh, and things like that. And uh, the assignment was to sort of represent him in a presentation of his art and his architecture. And uh, I... Uh, quickly seized control of the leadership of the team that I had been given. And so, I, I, of course, we were put together as a group of people, but it felt like I should lead that group of people because, um, you know, we want to win and uh, we want to do the best that we possibly can. And so I seized leadership and I worked this group for months. It was a very, very long, big part of our grade, a long project, and uh, we worked them like dogs, and uh, I mean, late, late nights, through the night sometimes, and bought all these tools, invested all of this money, and uh, we get it up there for the day of the presentation, and uh, we unveil it to, with great anticipation because of the amount of energy that we had put in. And um, it gets a little foggy exactly what happened at this point. Uh, the memory is a little blurry, but it, it's, the professor said something to the effect of this project completely misses the ethos and the pathos of the architect. That, that's how it started, and it went downhill from there. And, and, it, and suddenly, we started realizing that, that it, was, it was a complete fiasco. And uh, what a stinging rebuke from the professor. But of course, it doesn't end there. If you've been in an environment like this, you know that the next step is for the whole class to evaluate your work as well. And so for about 30 minutes or so, you stand there trying to defend your decisions, which are obviously bad at this point. And I have to argue, and the rest of the group has to now try to argue why our project is awesome when it clearly isn't awesome. And the whole of the class gets to pile on and tell you everything that's wrong with it and critique everything to the finest little detail. Uh, and, you know, there's all sorts of reasons why, you know, all of, of this happened. And I, we certainly uh, can, I could certainly spend a whole lot of time reflecting and have reflect on how I had missed uh, something so obvious, became a near laughing stock to my class, and uh, the focus of intense disappointment and even anger to my now C-minus team members. Uh, and so could do all of that. But what, what I really, really remembered out of all of this was 
this incredibly stinging rebuke. And I think what mattered most to me after I was so soundly rebuffed was just, it felt so great. So great. And of course, not then, because then it felt miserable, and it felt horrible, and it felt like people were exposing me publicly, which of course they were, and, and so, but it did feel great later. In fact, I have gleaned so many lessons from that project that still impact me to this day. Things about arrogance and humility and leadership. And, and now I look back on it as a defining moment of my educational years. In those moments, not so much. In those moments, I was blaming people and I was deflecting and I was explaining how the, the professor really doesn't know what he's talking about, even though it was so patently obvious that we had, we had screwed this whole thing up. I wish now, I wish always, actually, that we could experience a rebuke in the moment of a rebuke in the same way that we might experience it later when we're reflecting on it, if we've actually grown and learned. But rarely is that the case. Normally, we start pushing back and we start blaming and we start pointing fingers and start explaining how it is that you also are a screw-up. And so it really can take the focus off of me having screwed up. But what would have to happen for us to not live in that way, for us to become more than mere humans, a theme that we've been developing over the course of this whole series, how can we become more than mere humans and learn to receive a rebuke with both humility and even gratitude? And that's what we're going to be looking at this morning in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. We're going to be covering the whole of the chapter. These are some tough passages. The next few weeks, actually, we've got a handful of some, some pretty tough uh, passages that are going to be coming up, but what we see here first is that we need humility to receive a rebuke. 1 Corinthians 5, starting in verse 1, it's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that even pagans do not tolerate. A man is sleeping with his father's wife, and you are proud. Shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning and have put out of your fellowship the man who has been doing this? The sin that he's talking about here probably means that the man is actually having sex with his stepmother. And his mother had most likely died. We don't have a whole lot of the details. Dad probably took another wife, a much younger wife, maybe even his son's age. The son took a liking or a lusting to her. And this was something that not even the pagans of that day would have approved of. For a whole host of reasons, how much more so should this have been something offensive to the Christian community. The grammar indicates that this is actually an ongoing thing. And because we don't hear anything about her, we only hear what, he, what has to happen to him. It's likely that she isn't even part of the Christian community. That he has come to faith and has joined the Christian community, but that she is still on the outside of the community. And I think when we come to a text like this, we recognize that there is great humility that's needed. I mean, Paul, he again rebukes the Corinthians for being puffed up. That's the word that's used here. They, they're proud. They have a, a self-assuredness about who they are and their giftedness and their status. And they're all puffed up and they're proud. And Paul's saying, really, you're proud and you're allowing this kind of a thing to happen? And of course, for the man himself, 
this is going to be a stinging rebuke. But we quickly leave the guy behind. And Paul turns his attention to the real focus of his rebuke, which is a rebuke of the Corinthian church. And he's going right after their pride. He laces it right in here and he says, listen, this is a problem. We've got to develop a humility when it comes to these sorts of things. And they need to get, they need to develop a humility that's going to allow them to receive this rebuke from the Apostle Paul. And, and we notice in there that it also says that there is mourning. He talks about there being mourning. And I think that there, there's got to be a whole, there's a sense in which we've got to have a heartbrokenness about all of this. The whole situation, the sin of the man and the, the sin in the community itself, there ought to be mourning. There ought to be a brokenness. And that's how the Christian church should approach all of these kinds of things, with, with a heavy heart, with the tenderness that comes from, from our own hearts being broken, with compassion and empathy. But I think we all end up struggling with pride. I mean, this man certainly would have, the Corinthians and each of us can, can recognize that in our own hearts as well. But if we can come to the reality, come to the, the, to the place where we recognize that we are all in fact sinners. Brings humility with it. The Christian church is so often known for our arrogance and our self-righteousness. And we, above all people, get to come to the text here and say, but we recognize the depth of sin and just how much it wraps itself around our hearts. That, that ought to not simply produce humility in us, but it also gets to produce a whole lot of compassion for others who are struggling with theirs as well. We also need courage. And this is a big part, I think, of what we see here, because we, we, Paul himself has the courage to rebuke not only this guy, but he also rebukes the whole of the community there in Corinth, which is interesting because we know there's all sorts of like drama already going on between him and Apollos and Cephas and what the people are viewing and how they're kind of picking leaders and going down these different roads. And so Paul, by doing this, could actually be hurting his standing in the Corinthian church, and yet it doesn't matter. Paul pushes forward, and he has the courage to offer a fierce rebuke. Now, here's a, I think this is a great rule of thumb. If you have the spiritual gift of rebuking people, maybe, maybe don't do it. Like, maybe that's a gift that you don't want to exercise. Uh, so here is a trustworthy saying, if you like rebuking people, you probably need a rebuke. And so, there you go. If you like rebuking people, you might actually need to be rebuked for your spiritual pride, your lack of compassion. So, if that is you this morning, then consider this your rebuke. But we are still called to have courage when it comes to rebuking people. And this is not a popular topic, as you can certainly already feel which is why it takes courage. When a Christian sees a brother or a sister living in sin, it is a whole lot easier for us to say nothing, to do nothing. If we suspect that something might be amiss, we often look for ways to avoid the conversation. In American Christianity, it's very much a live and let live. 
sort of a vibe. And that goes right up against what the Bible is calling us to. And so I think we need some nudges toward courage. I think we need some encouragement as to why this is so vital for us. And of course, the text actually does cover this. It says at the very beginning in verse 1, it is actually reported. This might even be an idiom that means something like everybody is talking about it. And so Paul is saying, everyone already knows this. You guys are proud. Everybody is talking about it. I've already heard about it. I'm not even up there in Corinth. And so there is a very real situation going on where the reputation of the community of faith is at stake. It's already getting out there. You know, we see this so often when the news breaks about some horrible tragedy, some hidden sin, some usually, you know, there's these massive uh, uncovering of, you know, of some sort of abuse scandal or something that's going on, and everyone is rightly horrified by it. And then, after the horror, comes the anger. And the anger is focused on not just that this happened, but that it was hidden. That no one talked about it. That the churches tried to cover it up. And it's right that there is anger at that. Because the church ought not to be covering these things up. We ought to be the first to expose these things and to bring ourselves into alignment with the principles of the scriptures. But he goes on. He says, for my part, even though I'm not physically present, I'm with you in spirit as one who is present with you in this way. I have already passed judgment in the name of our Lord Jesus. And that, that to me is pretty significant because we represent the work of Jesus in the midst of the community. And so you yourself are a representative of Jesus. You work in his name. You represent his mission. What Jesus would want to accomplish, that's what you as a Christian are called to actually do, to represent him and his interests and his love well. And if you refuse, if I refuse this most loving act of a rebuke that isn't showing the love of Christ and we're not representing his name well, he goes on. So when you are assembled and I am with you in spirit and the power of our Lord Jesus is present, hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. There's a whole lot we could say about this and there's a whole lot that I don't even really know exactly what it all means. But it all seems pretty serious. And the point that I want to make about this is that something that happens today hurts our eternity. And that's a trade-off. I'm not sure that we are really willing to take. We're going to destroy the flesh. And this isn't his bodily flesh. I think this, is, this refers more to the worldliness that is in him. If you look back at the rest of 1 Corinthians, you'll see that this, I think this is referring to his, the worldliness that he has carried over from his days as a pagan in Corinth. And that worldliness is going to be destroyed today in in this time so that his eternity the day of the Lord isn't going to be injured today's rebellion hurts tomorrow's reward then he says your boasting is not good don't you know that a little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough and the, what the NIV is trying to capture here is that the word that's used here is really about leaven. And they didn't use yeast in the same way. And so, like, it's helpful to kind of get a picture of this. 
we don't, we don't, most of us don't bake our own bread, right? I'm assuming most of us don't bake our own bread. We usually go out and buy our bread. But in the ancient world, of course, people baked their bread and often would bake it every single day. And they wouldn't like rip open a little yellow packet of yeast and sprinkle it in and like, you know, work it into their dough. It's just not like a thing. And so what they would do is they would work a, a yeast into their dough at one point in history. And then they would leave a little bit of that dough till the next day. The starter dough. I think we started doing this like in the 90s with sourdough. People were talking about their starter things or something. Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about, but you're embarrassed to say. But, uh, and, and I think it even started again in COVID. People were talking about getting a starter, uh, like a starter. And that little bit of starter dough is the leaven. And you would take that little starter dough and you would take your ingredients tomorrow morning and you get your flour and your water and whatever else goes into bread baking, because that was all I think is goes into it, uh, all I know that goes into it. And you take that little bit of dough, that little bit of leaven, and you work that leftover dough into the loaf, into the dough, into the new dough, and it, it now yeasts the whole of it. It leavens the whole of it. And so all those little bacteria and all those little things that are fermenting in there, that makes it rise, and then you repeat the whole process. So at the end of the day, you take a little bit of that dough before you bake it, you stick it to the side, and you wait, you use that leaven for tomorrow's. And so you take yesterday's yeasted leaven, and you let it impact, or in this case, infect the bread of today, which will ultimately infect the bread of tomorrow. And the picture that the scriptures use is that a little bit of leaven can actually work its way through the whole batch, meaning the whole community. This isn't, this isn't, this isn't small stakes anymore. This is a big deal now. It's not just that, you know, we love this idea that sin is all individual. It's just about, you know, it's, a, it's one person situation. That's all that really impacts. It's only, hey, that's their problem. And, and Paul here is saying it's not their problem. It's our problem. This has a way of working itself through the whole of the community. Which is why your boasting isn't good. Now I do think that there is a great pitfall that keeps us from rebuking people. And it actually shows up here in the text. And it's a little bit of a catch-22 because it's actually, I think, the gospel itself. And I think this is kind of worth us exploring for just a little bit. So the Corinthians the church in Corinth, are acting worse than the Romans and the, the Greeks in Corinth in this particular case. How is that? What's different between them? Well, what's different between them is the gospel. It's the good news. It's the promise of salvation in Christ and the forgiveness of sins. He says, get rid of the old yeast so that you may be a new unleavened batch as you really are for Christ our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. And so they understand that we as followers of Jesus, we're already forgiven of our sin. And so it is often very easy for a Christ follower to say, well, you know, we're already forgiven. Like sin isn't a big deal anymore for us. That's what's the main difference between them and the, the Gentiles in the, that are in Corinth. They actually have the truth of the gospel. And in fact, they are forgiven. But that doesn't mean that sin isn't supposed to be taken seriously. Jesus calls us to forgiveness of sinners. Absolutely. That's vital. But the forgiveness of Jesus doesn't mean turning a blind eye. It means calling us to a greater truth. 
The gospel really does offer us real hope to the one who sins. This is kind of an interesting thing. I can't fully develop it all right now, but this was all taking place around the time of the Exodus. So Israel's in slavery in Egypt, right? That's a big deal. They're about to be liberated. The plague of the, first, the death of the firstborn is about to hit all of the nation of Israel, of the nation of Egypt. Israel will be included in this unless they protect their homes with the blood of the Passover lamb. And so they take a lamb, they shed its blood, the lamb dies metaphorically in place of those in the house. They take the blood and they put it on the doorposts of their house. That's the Passover lamb. But after the Passover comes the feast of unleavened bread. That's why he says, therefore let us keep the festival, not with the old bread leavened with malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread. So after the Passover, there is the feast of unleavened bread. And the feast of unleavened bread is a different part of the Passover celebration because this is about yeast in the house. And so the Jewish people will search their homes, find every little bit of yeast or anything that had been leavened, and they will get it out of their house. They'll, they'll, they'll make sure their whole house is completely leaven-free. I think it's for like a week or something like that. And they get rid of all of the leaven, which is a symbol of sin. And so the Passover gives us our forgiveness. It means that we will not experience the wrath of God. But, but it rolls right into the festival of unleavened bread, which is us getting rid of the sin and the leaven of Egypt. Remember, this is the exodus from Egypt. So they got out of Egypt with the Passover, but now they're supposed to leave Egypt in the past. That's the festival of unleavened bread. You leave Egypt, you leave its values, you leave that whole world behind, you leave all of that sin behind. What good is it for a person to be saved through the Passover but not be saved from the tyranny of sin in their lives? Ask an addict, someone who's struggling in their 12 steps. Go ahead and ask them if they think, hey, you know what? If you said to them, you are forgiven, that's great. But if they don't have victory over their demons, it doesn't have any real practical value to how they're going to live and, and their relationships here. They want to be both forgiven and delivered from the tyranny of their sin. That's why Paul weaves these two ideas together. Because he's calling them to a greater future. In fact, you really see it here. right? He says, get rid of the old yeast so that you may be a new unleavened batch as you really are. You can hear the hopefulness in this. The courage that he's trying to give them. The encouragement. He's saying, you're being called to a greater future. There is an end to their mere humanity. And this is now helping us enter into the supernatural promises and the power that Jesus Christ offers us through the defeat of death in the Passover and through our deliverance from sin and the threat of death through the unleavened bread ceremonies. So what does this look like for us today? Paul tells the Corinthian church to expel the wicked person, to excommunicate them, to remove them from membership, to deny them access to fellowship. He tells them here in verse 9, I wrote to you my letter not to associate 
with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral, or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you'd have to leave the world. <laughs> so he's like, listen, you want to leave all the sinners behind, you'd have to be dead. That's it. That's the only way you're going to do it. And so some in Corinth must have thought he was saying, you've got to pull out. You know, this is the whole monastic movement. They pulled out of the world. They tried to, to separate themselves from all sinners around them and fearful that they would be infected when, in fact, they were supposed to be the, the reverse leavening agent. They were supposed to be bringing the righteousness and holiness of Christ to people. Instead, they're pulling out. And he's saying, no, no, that's not at all what I meant. One of the saddest moments for me working uh, with a new Christian is when they tell me they don't have any non-Christian friends anymore. They're like, oh, yeah, I've been so busy at church, and I got my groups, and I got this, and I'm doing that, and the schedule is so tough. I've let all those friendships, they, were, they weren't good for me anyway. And I'm always heartbroken because where is the, the, the living for Christ and the representing of Christ? Where They've lost the missional fervor of what it means to actually represent Christ in this world. And Paul's saying, listen, I didn't mean that. I'm not telling you you were supposed to leave all of your jobs and you were supposed to not associate with any of these people anymore. You're living in exile right now in the midst of Satan's kingdom. It's inevitable. And I'm also telling you, stop judging them. Why are you expecting non-Christians to live like Christians? Knock it off. Just knock it off. Don't do it. But Paul does make sure that the Christian who is refusing to repent of their sin feels the disruption that their sin is causing the community. But now I'm writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister, but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or slanderer or drunkard or swindler. Do not even eat with such people. This is, this is some rough stuff here. This is repeated elsewhere in the scriptures. It's not a lone teaching. It shows up in many other places. It's helpful for us to remember that the goal of any sort of confrontation like this, any sort of rebuke, the goal is always the same. Paul even hints at it in another, at the very beginning. He says, what business is, is, is of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked person from among you. So he doubles down and he says, we've got to expel this person. We will, in fact, pass judgment on them but back up he says when you're assembled and I'm with you in spirit and the power of our Lord Jesus is present hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh we read this earlier so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord and so there's a redemptive promise in all of this any application of rebuke or confrontation for those who are offering the rebuke must be done with the goal of restoration in mind. And it's not just here. It's other verses as well in the scriptures. How do we actually do that today? So you take a text like this, the one that we were just looking at a little earlier. You take verses like Matthew 18, and you kind of get a picture as to what this is supposed to look like for us even today. So you notice that something is going wonky in someone's life. Maybe you're not exactly sure of the details, but it does seem like something is amiss. First, approach a person with humility because 
you might be wrong. That's happened plenty of times to me over the years where I was pretty sure that someone was doing some things and having a relationship or in a way that was actually totally wrong and immoral and against God's plan for their lives. And I approached them uh, with a sort of confidence to say, you know, I know this is going on. And then they explain the situation and you realize, of course, you were the one wrong and harshly judging. So you're, you're going to want to wanna be open to the fact that you, you might be wrong. But the reality is there are going to be times where you are right. You're going to notice something wonky. And in a sense, what you're going to do now is you're going to pass judgment on the sin. And I know this is such a thing. We're like, oh, you can't. It's the only verse everyone knows, right? Don't judge lest you be judged. And so like, we, we love that verse because, you know, it frees us from any sort of a judgment. But here we get Paul saying something exactly different from that. He's saying, no, no, there is a way that you, in fact, must judge. And Jesus did judge. And you will have to do this as well. You're going to say, this is not the way that we as a Christian community ought to live. And in that way, you've passed judgment on that sin. And then you start with a small circle of rebuke, preferably just you. You go to your friend and you say, hey, listen, here's what I'm seeing. This feels like, you know, a sin issue that we need to deal with. And I want to be here for you to pray, support, encourage you, be, help hold you accountable. But I'm with this, I'm with you in this journey. And if they say, great, fantastic, thank you, they have the humility to accept that rebuke, then you walk with them in that journey toward restoration, forgiveness, and you offer them the hope of the Passover lamb. If that person refuses, the next step is to take someone else with you to widen the circle of accountability. Maybe it's a small group member that knows them, or maybe it's you know, another friend that you trust, uh, someone that knows them and maybe hopefully has seen or knows about the circumstance that, that they're struggling with, the sin they're wrestling with, and you offer that rebuke. And what you're doing is you're bringing wider circles, larger circles of accountability in order to cause a person to reconsider their lifestyle choices, the sin that they're committing, so that they might be restored back to a purity of life that is fitting for the followers of Jesus. Ultimately, this process would involve church leaders and ultimately excommunication in some cases. If a person continues to refuse to repent, then they would be removed from the community. So it's helpful for us to take a moment and talk about removable offenses because it can't be every sin, right? It can't be every sin. So if all of a sudden you're one of these like professional rebukers and you're like, yes, this is what I needed to hear today. Now I'm going to go and point out your sin, your sin, your sin, your sin. I saw how you pulled out of the parking lot, Robert. Um, and so like all of this kind of stuff, that's not what we're talking about because not every sin, because of course, if that were the case, if every single sin were an excommunicable offense, like who, who, would, who would be left here? Right? Like, anybody want to raise their hand and say, that would be me, I would be left here. Because, like, you know, it feels like, you know, he who was out sin cast the first stone. But, but it can't be every sin. But Paul was clearly already saying some must be. In this case, incest is mentioned explicitly. Sexual sin in general shows up to be, has to be considered very, very carefully. We'll talk more about that in a future week. Divisiveness is here as well, we see. It's in Titus 3, 2 Thessalonians 3, and that makes sense. Removing people who are trying to actually divide a church makes, makes perfect sense to me. We also see that the sin that corrupts a community of faith. So there might be attitudes and practices and habits 
that might infect a broader community if it were not confronted, kind of like leaven impacts the whole loaf. That might seem worthy of an increasing rebuke, and that could be false teaching, it could be posts, uh, social media that misrepresent or embarrass the Christian church, it could be judgmentalism, it could have people with pugnacious kind of behaviors and things like that. In fact, the sin list that Paul gives shows that lots of sins might become serious enough and unrepentant enough that they're worthy of rebuking someone all the way to excommunication if that goes far. He gave us just a sampling there in his quick little list, probably related to the sins of the Corinthians in general. We as a church have done this on a number of occasions with sadness and heartache, and we are almost always working with congregants in this area of sin and rebuke and repentance. Now, I would say it gets a little bit tricky in our day and age to do this, because if you were to excommunicate someone today, you all know what is probably going to happen next Sunday for them, right? You can already guess what it's going to be. So back in Paul's day, if you had left the pagan worship of, you know, the gods and the, you know, pagan styles of, of doing business, and you had, you had already separated yourself and you had identified with the Christian community, then being excommunicated from the Christian community would apply real pressure. But nowadays, it's hard to see how that applies real pressure. And so if the goal is restoration, I think we need to figure out what that looks like for us today. And I suspect it takes a great deal of wisdom. I know it takes a great deal of wisdom and a whole lot of application of these principles in, in some ways that are still working toward restoration. Because nowadays, of course, you know what happens. A person gets, you know, uh, rebuked at a church and they work with them for a year and finally they, in a huff, say, I'm out of here. I'm not going to settle for that. I'm not going to take any of this. And they go down the street to the next church and that church receives them without due diligence often and without, uh, you know, kind of figuring out what had happened in the past. And they're just glad to have them because someone else in the seats. And if they're wealthy or talented, you absolutely know that they're like, come on in. Don't worry about what happened in the past. And so back in Corinth, that couldn't have happened. There was just the Corinthian church. Now these things get a little bit more difficult. Or you get a person who doesn't even want to be a part of a Christian community. They want, a, you know, they want an online preacher and they want podcasts and they want people who are in their, their group who don't actually see their life. And, and so they, they can't really actually be observed in any sort of a sin because all they know is what they're able to type out and think about. And so for people like that, how in the world does this apply because for them, you almost, you almost need more relationship. You almost need to, to fold them into community more fully and completely. And so it gets a little bit more difficult in how to apply these truths to the same end goal. But the reality is we must wrestle with what that looks like and do as a church on a regular basis. Anyway, all of this is to remind us that the giving and the receiving of a rebuke, it ought to be a normal part of the new community of Christ followers. I have been rebuked many, many times from staff, from other leaders, from family, from congregants. So there you go. Um, some of you are like, yep, that's been my job here at Beacon for a long time is to rebuke Robert. Uh, and sometimes I've taken it really, really well. And sometimes not so great. I've also offered plenty of rebukes. All of this should teach us the humility that we all need to do this, to do it well, to have the courage because we were meant for something 
far greater than this mere humanity that we see all around us, a kind of involvement in, in each other's lives, a kind of accountability, a kind of love that presses past these kinds of things and offers an acceptance in the midst of our sin and a commitment to and a love that goes beyond what the world can offer. And we can help people toward that end with courageous and empathy-filled rebukes, especially when they're received with humble hearts that the Holy Spirit is building into us. So may we be these people more and more. If you enjoyed the sermon, want to learn more about Jesus, or get to know our community, please visit beacon.church to get connected. We would love to hear from you.